Hello everyone, and welcome to Not Indie Comic Spotlight, the show where we do a deep dive into an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. Today, you'll notice the subject line is Sonic Salon 2, Electric Boogaloo. And what is the Sonic Salon, you may ask? Well, a couple of weeks ago here on the Indie Spotlight channel, uh, I played episode zero of the Sonic Salon. So it's pretty cool. It's a new show that myself and some other creatives have started. And it's on its own feed, but it is born out of Comics in Motion and the joy and the beauty that is the Comics in Motion family. So of course, we want to thank everybody in the Comics in Motion family, Dave and Chris, the Podfathers, and everybody who's been there from the beginning, new family, old family, all the family. Thank you for giving us this space. And so what you're about to hear are th the first three episodes of Sonic Salon. When we did the episode zero a couple weeks ago, we didn't have an RSS feed because it was literally just new that day. You can click on the RSS feed and add it to your favorite podcast catcher. You can just copy, paste it in, whatever you're listening to this on, however you get comics in motion. If you click on that RSS feed and you add it to this player, then Sonic Salon will populate and you'll be able to subscribe. And every two weeks, you'll get a new work of original art, be it fiction, be it poems, be it essays. You're gonna hear a short story that I wrote that Ada McCartney has read. You're going to hear a short story that Tanya Todd has written and read herself, and you're going to hear an essay written and read by Allison Shelton. And then in two weeks, Ada McCartney's voice will be back on the Sonic Salon feed in and of itself to read some poems from a forthcoming uh, collection. So you get that, and then every two weeks, there'll be something new from members of the Comics in Motion family and the extended family, friends, cousins, as, as it were. So thank you all for listening. Please, please, please subscribe to the Sonic Salon. Listen to it here, of course. But if you could, if you could please, if you're listening to this, take that RSS feed, put it in your podcast catcher, and then hit subscribe. We would really appreciate it. Spread the word. Art matters. The door is open. The gates are busted. Welcome to the Sonic Salon. Policy, written by A.R. Farina, read by A.A. McCartney. 1. Gloria waited in line with the rest of the donors. Shuffle, step, shuffle, step. There was only one working door at the fundraiser, and each person had to go through a screening process. Metal detectors and x-rays for the bags. There was a lot of expensive jewelry on display that needed to come off and then put back on. It was arduous. When she arrived, she was half a block back, and after 15 minutes, she just reached the standing queue tape section that zigged and zagged into infinity. Shuffle, step, shuffle, step. All of them were dressed in formal wear. Each man wore ostensibly the same outfit. The tuxedo had seemingly never gone out of fashion. From behind, each of them was indistinguishable, and in this room, they were all essentially the same from the front. 
white men ranging in age from 40 to 70 with close-cut hair. Most of them had beards. She wondered if it was to show deference to the senator. He grew a beard several years ago, and even though it looked objectively terrible on him, he kept it. She suspected that if she saw pictures of the donors five years prior, they would have been clean-shaven as well. Shuffle, step, shuffle, step. The women in line went out of their way to look as different from each other as possible. The colors of the dresses and gowns covered the rainbow. Some sparkled, some were matte, some were flowery and some were plain, some flowed and some hung straight down. None of them had pockets. The women all carried clutches, crammed full of everything they needed to get through an entire formal evening that included seven courses, several speeches, and dancing to a live band. If they were like Gloria, they wondered that if they opened their clutch at the table, it would burst forth like a joke can of peanuts, shooting tampons, hand wipes, chapstick, and other accruements flying across the table. Phones were not allowed at events like this after what happened in 2012 to the nominee, so at least they didn't have to worry about where to put that. Shuffle. Step. Shuffle. Step. Gloria, one of the few women in the room who arrived unaccompanied, opted for a classic little black dress. It stopped just short of her knees. She opted for a short, square heel instead of the stilettos that were popular among the other donors. She wanted to keep as much attention off herself as possible. Standing at just under six feet with red hair and green eyes, she was already an anomaly. Being a young woman alone at a political fundraiser made her a unicorn. She knew the little black dress was not the best camouflage, but it was the best she could do. Shuffle. Step. Shuffle. Step. Fifteen minutes later, and she was five people away from the door. The couple in front of her was a man in his golden years who was clearly old enough not to feel that he needed to grow a fealty beard and a woman young enough to be his granddaughter. She was dressed in what could have been her prom dress a few years prior. It sparkled and could have been seen from space. The necklace around her neck was equal to the GDP in several countries. He seemed to know everything about everyone in line and who was already inside spoke loudly at his date. She hmmed and ahed at whatever he said. She occasionally said, oh really? Just to spice it up. Each time he put his hand on her lower back and leaned in to whisper shout in her ear, Gloria could see her shoulders tense. It was clear he thought this is how women reacted to being touched. Shuffle, step, shuffle, step. One more person went through the door. Gloria rested her hand on the young woman's shoulder. Excuse me. Yes, she said in a practiced way. She may have said yes, but she meant what? Could you hold this for a second? She held out her clutch. 
I need to adjust my shoe strap. They both looked down and saw that indeed the strap had come out of its buckle. Had the woman looked down at any time during their half-hour wait, she would have noticed that it had been undone the whole time. Of course. The young woman faked smiled, showing no teeth. Gloria squatted down, allowing her dress to cover her feet. She looked up and smiled as she fiddled with her strap without looking. She looked at the old man directly in his eyes to stop him from looking down her dress, but he did so unabashedly anyway. She stood up and took the clutch back from the young woman with her left hand while touching the man on his side with her right. Thank you so much. You excited? she asked the couple. This is my first time meeting the senator. She said it the way she'd heard her daughter talk about one of those K-pop boys. The woman opened her mouth, but the man beat her to it. Well, I've met him dozens of times, so hell, I could fill a wall with pictures of me and guys like him. He spoke the way that northerners thought southerners talked. This one, he patted her ass, is coming for the first time. Gloria resisted the urge to make a joke about orgasms. Instead, she said, me too. She sagged a bit, as though she'd been holding herself together with the thrill of all of it. I donated most of my savings just to be here, but I think it'll be worth it. The woman in front of her made a face that looked like she had just smelled a skunk. Gloria wasn't sure if it was because she thought that the cost of a ticket was a lot to amount to one's entire savings or a little. She assumed that this woman would fail the price of a gallon of milk quiz that the senator himself had failed just a week before. Well, I think that's admirable, little lady, he said, leaning hard into the stereotype by ignoring the fact that she was in near flats and he was in cowboy boots and she still had half a foot on him. Yes, I just... She paused to put on the best performance she could. I just think it will all be worth it. We need him on our side and every dollar counts. I mean... If I didn't give my money to him, those commies in office now will just take it from me anyway. <laughs> shuffle, step, shuffle, step. The man laughed a big laugh. <laughs> That's it exactly, he said once he controlled himself. I like the cut of your jib. The woman, whose skunk face was at a risk of becoming permanent, did not seem to like Gloria's jib. She once again opened her mouth to speak, but the security guard said, Ladies, I need your purses here on the belt. Please remove any jewelry to have it x-rayed, then follow your... He paused, not sure what to call the man. The guard clearly assumed they were all together. Follow this young man through the metal detector. The old man loved being called a young man so much that he whooped and slugged the security guard on the shoulder. The young woman needed time to take off multiple pieces of jewelry, whereas Gloria did not. She set her clutch on the belt and lost her balance. She reached out and grabbed the man by his right wrist. Whoa there, I got you. Sorry, I'm just she waved her hand at the convention center. I totally understand. It's a big night. Why don't you get through? Ladies first, I insist. He waved at the metal detector. Once she was through, 
and there were no sounds from the metal detector as she knew there would not be, and there was a sound from the metal detector from the man as she knew there would be, she tripped back into the man. She placed her left hand on his shoulder to steady herself and her right hand on his side. She righted herself quickly and said, oh my, I'm so sorry. I'm, I must be more nervous than I thought now that we're finally here. I can't seem to control myself. Good thing I've not had anything to drink yet. Don't you worry about it. I'll do her good to see, it'll do her good to see that other women are throwing themselves at me. He laughed heartily at his own joke. Sir, please hold out your arms. As the man did, his watch appeared from under his sleeve. The wand beeped over his right wrist, and the rest of him was clear. We said all jewelry, sir, the annoyed guard snapped. Son, you watch your tone. This is my last name on the building. The senator is sitting with me at dinner. I'm the one who agreed to this one-door campaign. One door in, one door out. Do you know how much that cost me to get every door in that building so that if the deadbolt locks from the inside, no one can get in? This is all for show, boy. I don't need to even... Gloria hoped for a scene, but she did not expect one of epic proportions. The young woman had cleared the metal detector and was unsure what to make of the situation. The old man started unloading a string of curses at the security guard that brought the attention of the head of security who, recognizing his boss, pulled his lips into a straight line as he approached the scene with his hands extended, trying to make peace. With that, Gloria grabbed her clutch from the belt with her left hand, her right hand still clenched in a fist. She filtered through the single-file point of entry and headed to the ladies' room. Two. In the green room, the senator and his wife were having a heated discussion. He wanted to bring their daughters out on stage, and she wanted them home with the nanny. They were in a separate green room with said nanny eating dinner. They were not included in the meal portion of the evening, just the final moment on stage. Damn it, this is important. You know that kids poll well, the senator said. This is a closed event, and everyone who has been here has already given you money. There are no pollsters here. Don't be naive. Of course there are pollsters here. Every table has a plant. How else am I supposed to know what to say? She scoffed. You used to know say what was on your mind. Isn't that how you got elected in the first place? <sighs> that time has gone by. If we want the big house, we have to do this. It's only in the lame duck second term that anyone gets to say what's on his mind. Well, she knew he was right, and yet she didn't want to concede the point. She hated who he had become. She hated who she'd become. She hated the whole thing. She opened her mouth to speak, and there was a knock at the door. The door opened a few seconds after the knock, as was the custom anymore. Even at home, they had no privacy. The knock wasn't asking for permission, but a warning that the door was opening. She knew she should have flipped the deadbolt when she came in. She knew that there was no key for it. 
his grand one-door plan in action right there for her to use to her advantage, but she was too angry. His bagman, a haggard-looking man who she knew was 25 but who looked 40, came in with his painted smile on. His fealty beard was patchy. Parts of his cheeks were visible through matted hair. He looked absurd. Everyone knew it, and yet everyone knew he would keep it for as long as was required. Ma'am, he nodded at her. He always addressed her first, no matter who else was in the room. The meet and greets are ready, Senator. Now, he whined and looked down at his watch as though he had a clue what the schedule actually was. Yes, sir. We agreed to do them before dinner so as to make sure the people were not, um, sloppy drunk, the senator's wife said. The bagman smiled. Yes, ma'am. It's an open bar. The senator asked, how many? Eleven. Eleven, he whined again. That doesn't seem like enough. We put a limit on it, senator. Why would we do that? Polls suggest that people wanted to feel as though they actually got to speak to you. The algorithm came back with 11 people for 60 minutes. If they have that kind of time with you, they're more likely to come to another one of these. Play the long game, right, dear? He exhaled and shrugged his shoulders. Fine, yes. He looked at his watch again. An hour? Yes, sir. That includes the pictures? For Christ's sakes, it's always the same. Quit acting like a baby, the senator's wife chided him. The bagman smirked and looked down. The senator shouted, fine, fine, let them in. He moved over to his wife and put his arm around her back. She did the same to him, making them as appear as though they were getting ready to load into a potato sack at any time. The doors open. Welcome, welcome, thank you all for coming, the senator and his wife said over and over as the donors filed in. They each extended one arm, making them look as though they were going to welcome each new donor into a three-person hug. Eight of the eleven people consisted of four couples. There were two men whose hats were not compensating for anything at all, and finally Gloria entered the room still looking a little wobbly on her feet. She held her clutch in her left hand and kept her right hand over her stomach as though something may burst at any moment. Gloria spent the first half of the event hovering around the edges of the gathering. She sipped some of the champagne. It was top shelf and cost more than her car payment per bottle. She nibbled on some of the hors d'oeuvres. She was told that it was fresh something or other flown in from Maine and aged cheese shipped from Wisconsin. It all tasted like sand anyway, so she just wandered to the opposite side of the room and stood like a middle schooler hoping to be asked to the dance, but equally fearing she would be. The senator's wife approached her at the midpoint and said, you know, you don't have to defer to the boys. She pointed with her chin at the men in the cowboy hat, saying some back-slapping things to the senator. Oh, I don't mind. We all get a turn, right? Why, yes, of course, dear. You have my word. Thank you, ma'am. Gloria bound her head. 
what, what is it that you do? She asked, leaving space for her to say her name. She was the first person to actually ask her name all night. The bagman already knew it as they had been exchanging emails for a month as he set up the protocol for the event. Where to stand, what to say, what not to say, confirming the mailing address for the photograph that would be signed and mailed in six to eight weeks after the event. Gloria, I'm a teacher. She made the decision before she came in that she would tell the truth to anyone who asked. The truth is easier to remember than a lie. What a glorious profession. The children are the future after all. <laughs> they certainly are. If it isn't impertinent, dear. How did I afford this? The senator's wife smiled with relief. I used my life savings to be here tonight. I even cashed out some of my retirement. She gasped and put her hand over her heart. Oh dear, I can't allow that. This isn't, this isn't anything. Gloria reached out, palms up, inviting her to take her hands. The senator's wife did. She clasped her hands together inside of hers so that it looked to anyone who might have looked that they were both locked in prayer. Gloria looked down right into her eyes. It's everything, Gloria nodded her head slowly and stared into the senator's wife's eyes. I mean it. This is everything. This is the most important thing I have ever done. It still wasn't a lie. So far, she'd only told one lie, and it wasn't to this woman. Well then, I will make sure you get your time and that it counts. Thank you, ma'am. Gloria released her hands. I, I would like to go last. I want the senator to remember me. An old teacher trick we call a takeaway. You say something profound or ask a question just as they leave the door and it sticks with them. I like that, the senator's wife smiled. I will make it so. Thank you, ma'am. I really do appreciate it. Honey, the senator's wife shouted over, the senator shouted over at his wife. Do come here. This lovely couple, pause, backing up. Honey, the senator shouted out to his wife, do come here. This lovely couple says they knew you back in your New York days. The cowboy's time was up. They were standing over by the food and drink table, talking loudly from five feet apart about how their conversation with the senator went. They thought it went spectacularly well and that they and the senator saw eye to eye on the gun issue. They too, shockingly, believed that doors were the real problem and the senator's one-door policy was the answer. It's true what the senator says, slurred Cowboy 1, who paused to finish another glass. Cowboy 2 jumped in, knowing the end of the slogan that the senator had been throwing around ever since the last tragedy. Guns aren't the problem, he said at a full shout. Doors are the problem, they both shouted at the same time. They laughed and laughed, and the rest of the donors cheered and clapped. Gloria needed a drink. She was trying to calculate her personal pain threshold. Was the drink, which she thought she might need to prepare for what came next, 
important enough to endure the overt sexual harassment and parroted talking points that would most assuredly come if she went anywhere near the cowboys? Or could she do what she needed to do next without it? She was doing the math when the senator's wife reappeared at her arm. It's time, Gloria! She said it in a tone that she had only heard once before, and that was when her sister came to get her on her wedding day. Three. Dear, I know your hour is almost up, but Gloria here didn't have a chance to speak to you, and I promised her that she would have the last word with you before we go out to have dinner. She's a teacher, and she's gone through a lot to be here tonight, the senator's wife said as she placed her hand on Gloria's back, indicating that Gloria was not some overpriced cowboy. But of course, anything for you, darling, he looked from his wife up to Gloria's face. He reached out his hand to shake hers. A teacher? Wow, what a noble profession. What grade? She shook like her mother taught her and the way she taught kids in her classroom. Firm hands, make eye contact, squeeze, but not too hard. Gloria knew he would be practiced and perfect. She wanted to be on even footing. Sixth grade, thank you for giving me a few minutes, Senator. I'm happy to, as long as you're willing to do the picture before we talk. Don't want to forget the picture. Oh, she had forgotten about the picture. She imagined it still showing up in eight weeks, being sent out by a nameless intern who didn't know any better. Yes, of course. Could we have your lovely wife in it, too? Gloria knew she was the only one who asked to have the senator's wife in the picture as well. Oh, Gloria, this isn't about me, the senator's wife said. No, ma'am, it is. No one has the senator's back as much as you do. I've seen you on TV arguing his points just as vehemently as he does. You are equally responsible for the one-door movement. Be honest. Gloria leaned in as though she and the senator's wife were in on a secret. You are just as important as he is, right? The senator put his arm around his wife's back and spoke before she could answer. She is my most ardent supporter and my partner in everything I do. I agree with Gloria, dear. I think it would be perfect for you to be in it with us. Well, the senator's wife actually blushed. If you both insist. We do, they said at the same time. They laughed about it and then laughed about laughing about it. The bag man was ushering the other ten donors out of the room. The hour was over. The senator could decide to stay behind, but that was not an open invitation for them to stay. He handed them off to someone in the hallway who was to escort them to their table. They wouldn't sit with the senator, but near him during the event. Dining with him cost even more than having champagne and cheese. He came back and lined the three of them up, Gloria in the middle, towering over them, the peak in the triangle. Smile on three. One, two, three. Smiles all around. Excellent. The senator looked at his watch and back up at Gloria and asked, How would you feel about a walk and talk, Gloria? Dear, I promised you would give her your time. She said she had something important to say to you.
No, ma'am, thank you. That, that will be fine, Senator. We can walk. Thank you so much, Gloria. You know, you can keep people waiting at events like this, but only for so long. Gloria wasn't sure if he realized that he had just told her that she wasn't actually a person or not. It didn't matter anyway. Of course, Senator, she smiled and nodded. They walked toward the door. Now, what is it you wanted to talk about? My education policies? My plan to eliminate the Department of Education so we can free you up to do the work you know is best? Well, Gloria slowed down the pace. Shuffle. Step. Shuffle. Step. The senator, used to mimicking whatever it was his donors did to make them happy, slowed down too. I wanted to talk about the one-door policy. Ah, yes, the ODP, he said it the way that other Gen Xers said, OPP. It's my crowning achievement. It's all anyone can seem to talk about. Obviously, it's the only way to keep kids safe. That last tragedy could have been prevented if the ODP had been in place. Totally senseless, if you ask me. Did you know that this building was retrofitted to be a one-door building? I heard something about that. Shuffle, step, shuffle, step. Yes, it's the most secure building in the city, perhaps even in the country. He stopped walking and started waving his hands around. I wanted to have this event here tonight to showcase how safe and secure we all are when there is only one door in and one door out. He shouted that last part and held up one finger he thrust forward every time he said the word one. I am so glad you're a supporter of the policy. He hadn't noticed that she'd never said she was a supporter of the policy, just that she wanted to talk about it. The bag man caught his attention and tapped his watch, the same watch, both brand and style, that the senator wore. The senator nodded and started walking toward the door, making sure that Gloria was in front of him so he could keep talking. The bag man led the way. He went through the door first, followed by the senator's wife. Gloria positioned herself to go next. Gloria dropped her clutch. <laughs> so clumsy. She laughed and knelt down on her left knee to pick it up inches from the one door that led in or out of the room. The senator just kept talking, oblivious to the fact that she was on one knee. He was completely in stump speech mode. You know, Gloria, after tonight, I think the ODP is going to be all anyone is talking about. I think that every school in the state, nay, every country, the country, it will move heaven and earth to retrofit all schools to follow the standards they've installed here in this building. After tonight, the ODP will be a reality and I will be on my way to the White House as the man who saved all of America's children. She reached her left hand under her dress to her right thigh to retrieve what the old man whose name was on the building had brought through the metal detector for her. She used her right hand to swing the door shut. She stood up and kept her back to the senator for just long enough to flip the deadbolt that had no key. The only way in was with a battering ram, and that would take a while. She swung back around and placed the nose of a twenty-two caliber two-shot pistol against the senator's forehead. Or not.
written and recorded by Tanya Todd. Sasha stripped down to her seamless red thong and stared at the array of clothing covering her bed. She couldn't even choose a bra before knowing what blouse she'd wear. Scrutinizing the selection, her cap padded between the items lining her quilt. He swished his fluffy gray tail with disapproval. Either he wanted a spot for his early evening nap, or he didn't like the selections any better than she did. Not now, Bennett. She lifted him and set him on the floor. The last thing I need is cat hair on everything. Only 30 minutes remained before Luke's expected arrival. Sasha ransacked the piles for the right combination and donned her 12th potential outfit for the night. She checked the mirror. Ugh, still not right. She tossed them back on the bed. Slacks were essential. Anything else might mislead her date, make him think they could be more than friends, make her lose the bet. Smearing almond oil over her legs, she returned their ashy hue to smooth tawny and scanned her choices again. Nothing, nothing would work. If she didn't choose something soon, she'd still be naked when Luke arrived. Three hard knocks bellowed from her front door. Bennett ran from the room. Sasha covered her breasts. She wasn't ready for any of this. It was too soon. She snagged a silk rope from its hook. The cool material as she wrapped it around her bare skin soothed her heated frenzy. Just because he'd shown up half an hour early didn't mean she should rush. Let him pay the price for not getting there on time. With calm determination, she sauntered out of her room and to the front door. Despite her bold stance, relief washed over her when she checked the peephole. Instead of Luke's ghost-like beauty, a brawny bronze angel waited on the other side. She was saved. With Jacob's help, she'd definitely find an outfit to send the right message. No more fear of mixed signals. She threw open the door to welcome her friend. Jacob swept in with a flourish. Find something to wow him yet? That was the whole reason she needed him. The clothes on her bed weren't nice enough for dinner, but if she wore something appropriate, something that hinted at possible investment, Luke might mistake her decorum as interest. One brow arched, Jacob primped her curls. With a salacious smile, he assessed her current state of undress. That'll do it. No one's wowing anyone. She tightened the belt on her silk robe. I plan to appease my misguided suitor by going through the motions and fulfilling my perfunctory role as mechanically as possible to prove the fruitlessness of our pairing. That is all. Girl, you tripping. Jacob spun her around and nudged her toward the bedroom. Get in there and let's get you ready. But she would never be ready for Luke. Not really. The man had stepped out of a Jane Austen novel to sweep her off her feet. If her four decades taught her anything, it was that the Wickhams of the world favored the pleasures found in Las Vegas, not a true Mr. Darcy. And as a separated mother of three, she was no Elizabeth. Jacob shook his head at the chaos on her bed. You aren't even trying. Given that the contrived date simulation served only to placate a curiosity and fulfill the terms of her first bet with Jacob, what she wore didn't matter. Not really. She held up pant number two with shirt number nine, crisp black slacks with a blue button-down blouse. How about this? Sweetie. He rubbed his temples as though massaging away her painful suggestion. It's not a job interview. Well, it's not a real date either. On a real date, she would already know what to wear, not to mention where they were eating that evening. In fact, she would probably have planned the whole thing, controlling the night instead of leaving her fate to a random crapshoot. Be honest, Jacob said. How much of this is you trying to win the new bet versus freaking out because you really like him? I don't. I just... 
Her words sputtered. Any handsome man might engage the eye, but Luke aroused her mind, all the more challenging to resist. Her tingling tongue triggered a minty memory, the cool tickle of his breath, the fresh spark in his fire-blue eyes, the firm press of his lips when, during their drama class performance, Drake and Lily's breakup morphed into a public declaration of Luke's interest in more than friendship. Okay, maybe she sort of liked him, and maybe there was some part of her that wished she wasn't damaged goods. But she didn't have the bandwidth to start dating yet. Couldn't spare the time from her acting career. Besides, Sin City was no place to fall in love. Las Vegas meant bright lights, big city. She'd rather take the stage and risk tomatoes than roll the dice with her heart. Losing the first bet may have forced her into this experiment, but failing again meant agreeing to a second date. Extra bet or not, a second date might lead to a third. And third dates... No, this ended tonight. A warm hand on her elbow tugged her back to awareness. Jacob offered a gentle squeeze. If I send you out like this, I may as well forfeit. He'll never try to kiss you again. Works for me. It would certainly make all this easier. Well, it doesn't work for our bet, he set his hands on his hips. You promised you'd try. That was when she thought she'd win the first bet. Fine. She could still express platonic intentions draped in a plain frock. Something simple and boring that de-emphasized her curves. Let's look through my closet. He followed her into the walk-in wardrobe and scooped an armful of silk and satin gowns. Now we're talking. He headed toward the door, then broke to an abrupt halt. What's with all this blank space? I can't believe you haven't taken over the whole closet yet. It hasn't been that long. Five weeks to the day. Not that she was counting anniversaries anymore. Jacob spread her dresses out to breathe on an abandoned rod. The space is yours now. Use it. Together they perused the buffet of options. A peach shirt dress, a tangerine shift, a watermelon mini. She pointed to a plum maxi that dangled shapeless from its hanger. You've got to be kidding. He dismissed her suggestion with a wave and lifted her spearmint halter dress from the rod. This one. It's hot without trying. I can't wear that. Why not? Besides the fact that she wasn't aiming for hot, Luke had admired that dress during their first interaction when she was still trying to set him up with Jacob. Boy, had she misread that encounter. She never would have agreed to jaunt around Sunset Park quoting Shakespeare on Luke's arm had she known he was straight. He's already seen me in it. Gone. Jacob thrust it back to the rod. He flipped through more options and paused at a cherry red gown. Try this. Sasha caressed the smooth satin and fingered the velvet lace. The last time she'd worn this curve-hugging flowing number was at the only Las Vegas performance of Alice through the looking glass. When gliding across Smith Center's gray marble tiles, she embraced the palatial opulence of salmon stone walls, teardrop light fixtures hanging from sky-high ceilings, and the bronze genius and flight statue. Emboldened with the power only such a gown can provide, she'd aimed to strut the aisle to her center seat with the same grace and elegance as the Red Queen. Tonight's affair must not involve that type of magic, not if she planned to prevent a goodnight kiss. Even if she phoned in the entire evening to win the bet, the allure of this dress could blow her blasé performance. As he walked her to the door, Luke might be tempted to fan her skirt with a twirl, then whirl her into his arms for one glorious smooch. Heat flushed over Sasha's face and neck. You're trying to sabotage me. Look. Look.
A knowing grin eased across Jacob's face. If you could dress yourself, you wouldn't have to worry about my motives. That wasn't a denial. Oh, girl, he dabbed the faux sweat from his brow. I'm so glad you brought up denial. Can we dish about the real reason you'll lose tonight's bet? Sasha's mouth fell open, but resisted a verbal response. A yes or no would admit her expected defeat. Anything more would invite a tea party with unwanted spills. Her buzzing phone saved her from responding. Without apology, she slipped back into her bedroom, grabbed herself from the dresser, and checked her notifications. A text from Luke. Identify the quote. Sentence first, verdict afterwards. Sasha squeezed her phone. It was bad enough he'd hijacked her evening. Couldn't he wait until they were together before stimulating her brain? Her phone buzzed again. Stump you already? Ferocious fingers typed her response. Stuff and nonsense! He'd need more than Lewis Carroll to challenge her, especially with her Smith Center experience fresh on her mind. She chewed her lip, meditating on the coincidence. Others might read some type of sign into it. For her, it only proved why they'd make great friends. Hello, queen! Jacob bounded from the closet holding up a black satin gown in one hand, two matching opera gloves in the other. Why come to play when you can slay? That's tempting, if she were attending a coronation. Let's lose the gl- The doorbell rang. They shared a panicked look. I'm late, she said. I'm late for a very important- Don't! She stabbed her finger at him, daring him to continue. He beamed at the black gown. Guess you have to wear this. Calming herself with a deep breath, she extricated the satin ensemble from his grip. Let him in. I'll get dressed. Once alone with her selections, Sasha worked through her options again. If Luke liked her as much as Jacob claimed, he'd try to kiss her no matter what she wore. But even if the odds weren't in her favor, she was in the right city to beat them. Except that the house always wins. Rather than fold her cards, it was time to assume the position of power. Put him on the defense. She touched up her hair and makeup, then changed into her final outfit. When Sasha stepped out from the hall, she sashayed toward Luke with purpose. Despite the extra inches her heels provided, he stood taller than she remembered. His snug, cobalt button-down, sleeves tucked at the elbow, augmented the blue in his eyes. His jackpot smile lit the room. That dress. He glided forward two quick steps, then broke to a forceful stop. It's... She withheld a satisfied smile. Not only did this dress paint her in an intimidating light, it matched her favorite bold lipstick. No more running from Luke's chase. Her imperious presence would dissuade his approach. His shoulders relaxed and he recovered his usual poise. Stepping closer, he presented a crimson stargazer lily. Red is your color. She half expected roses, but Luke wasn't much for cliches, even beautiful ones. Noting his slick obsidian curls, perfectly gelled into place save one over his right brow, she restrained the urge to brush them into place. Because I'm angry and aggressive? Or was it her burning cheeks? You're passionate. He pushed closer, backing her to the wall, then brushed the velvet petals over her cheek, and driven. Sasha's heart pounded. Already he called her power bluff. Careful to avoid grazing his flesh, she peered into his eyes and wrapped her fingers around his offering. She breathed in the floral bouquet, reflecting on his opening act and his too attractive appearance. 
the kind of sexy that would make a weaker woman reconsider. Safe behind the flower, she reminded herself of the risk. Only pain could result from involvement. Now was not the time to gamble on romance. I'll take that. Jacob popped up from out of nowhere and reached for the lily. She double-blinked, having forgotten he was there. Leaning in, he whispered, You're going down. Reluctantly releasing the flower barrier, she raised her chin to resume her stately manner. Excuse us a moment. By all means. Luke's eyes twinkled with sincerity. As she stepped away, he caught her wrist. Take all the time you need. Electricity surged, branding the moment with their brief touch. Sasha pulled her gaze from him and escaped to her kitchen. Snickering more with every step, Jacob followed close behind her. New bet, double or nothing. She wouldn't let him intimidate her. Not in her Queen of Hearts dress. Already scared to lose? Jacob guffawed. Ten seconds together and he pinned you against the wall. Tonight's kiss is a foregone conclusion. I wasn't... She swallowed, stifling the image of Luke pressing her to the paint. She shook out her wrist. It wasn't that close. Please. If I hadn't interrupted, you'd be sucking face right now. Jacob twisted his lips, clearly restraining some pressing point. This bet is too easy. The stakes are too low. When he kisses you goodnight, all you have to do is agree to a second date. Assuming he asks, he will. And assuming he doesn't turn out to be a huge jerk, obviously... Fine. She tapped a red sole on the tile. There was no way to double her loss. Luke couldn't kiss her goodnight twice. She fingered her bottom lip. Even if he did, extra kisses wouldn't mean additional dates. Continue. No need to go all salty Sasha on me. Jacob threw his neck into it for emphasis. I notice you didn't question whether or not he'll kiss you. Her jaw sealed shut. He was right. Some part of her must have already accepted defeat, and attempting to lie couldn't overcome it. What's the new bet? The good night bet is still on, but... Jacob bounced in place, far too giddy about his proposal. If he kisses you before that, you have to be the one to ask him out. But that will make him think, uh-huh, Jacob nodded. And then he'll expect you to give him more than a rigged free spin. He bopped her nose with the lily. Stop being vulgar. Though not opposed to thwarting gender norms, extending invitations didn't make sense, not when actively avoiding a relationship. It's not vulgar, he said. Free spins never win. They offer false hope, which isn't really fair. She hadn't thought about that. Sure, she'd been upfront with Luke about her hesitation. Like a gentleman, he promised not to push, to go at any pace she desired if she'd at least try. But she didn't try and she wouldn't be pretending to try now if not for losing last week's bet to Jacob. And you have to wear the black satin number, gloves and all. Jacob, who instead of charging in as a trusty knave, arrived as more of a wild card. All he earned from these stupid bets were bragging rights and watching her squirm. She's the one who got to spend time with Luke. It might feel like a reward if not for the inevitable heartbreak. The hollow wound in her chest ached. So far, she'd only rolled snake eyes on love. Only a fool would ante up again. Sweetie. Jacob brushed a spiral of curls behind her ear. You have got to work on your poker face. She searched his eyes, trying to read his. Why is this so important to you? He looped his arm in hers and pointed her toward the living room. 
Look at this man. Studying her family photos with interest, Luke scratched Bennett's ears while cradling him in his arms. Her age didn't bother him, nor did her children. He wasn't even concerned about cat fur. Jacob's warm hand caressed her shoulder. If a guy like Luke can't get you to try again, you might never move your clothes to the rest of the closet. Okay, she whispered. I accept your new terms. And the dress? The gown? The gloves? Everything. Jacob danced a victory waltz with her flower. But she plucked the lily from him. Luke turned toward the commotion and returned Bennett to the floor. Arm outstretched, he reached a hand for Sasha. Shall we? Inhaling the lily's essence to resist the magnetic pull, she eyed Luke through the petals. If I win, you go six months without meddling in my love life. With all that heat, said Jacob, I won't have to. Sasha handed over the lily. She fixed her gaze on Luke. No more fighting him either. Gravitating toward him, she stepped into his orbit and accepted his hand. For the rest of the night, all bets were off. This has been A Betting Chance by Tanya Todd. Originally published by Huntington Press in Love in the Dunes, Las Vegas Writers on Passion and Heartache. and Shelton. The cost of grad school is steep. In exchange for a small fortune, we immerse ourselves in a world full of ideas, strongly marinated with our love and the company of others similarly in ardor. And a free backpack. One free, very inexpensive backpack from our school's corporate partner, Kodak. It's garbage, but I don it as evidence of a new life one far from the family that endeavored to grind me into dust, to prove I was of no consequence. This backpack, however flimsy, tells another story, and so I proudly wear it. Very few of us wear them, but he does. He's boyish in the extreme, younger than me, certainly, decent-seeming, wholesome. Corn-fed? Decidedly not the type of man I attract. But he is awfully cute and tall, and that dimple in his chin makes him difficult to ignore. Hey, nice backpack, he says. My feminist soul is not proud of myself as I smile, giggle a little, and say, thanks, you too. We talk for a minute and go our separate ways, but that's the moment when we ignite. Now more than 20 years later, There are no lukewarm quips, just the sound of his wet, sucking breath. My husband stands before I understand I must stop him. He pushes against my hands. They are a farce, grasping and unsure. In theory, I could push him back down hard, but the imagined sound of the back of his head meeting the hardwood floor. No. He groans with effort. I I scramble to reposition myself, to hold him from behind, just as I did with our son when I led him back to bed in the middle of the night. They list. They lose their balance, stumbling. 
their bodies trust my hands, believing them to be capable of holding them and keeping them safe. Time does indeed slow. Seconds stretch themselves to feel like minutes or hours, and suddenly his foot finds an extension cord. I cannot hold him up and disentangle the cord. I shove him forward onto the nearby couch. There can be no indecision. I must know that his body will cover the distance, so I push him with forceful intent. With love. Face first. Thud. The sound of his weight meeting an unforgiving surface, I don't expect it. I've never held something so large in my hands. Oh no, oh no, oh no. I think... Did I hurt him? He rolls over and tries to stand again. He can only grunt at this point. Speech comes later. He can't stand. No, he can, but he should not. I cannot guarantee his safety if he stands, though it seems to be the only thing he wants at this moment. Sit down, I command, imitating an authority I can't access. Please, please don't stand. I cajole, trying a different tact. His eyes roll around in his head more like pinballs than the eyes I know and love. The eyes that spark every time they glance my way. The kindest eyes. Once that taught me I was worth seeing and ultimately loving. I can't get him to look at me. I can't get him to sit down. I can't do anything. Correction. I can be here. I consider not for the first time in these endless minutes calling 911, but last time they fractured his shoulder. Calm down, brother, we got you, they'd said as they forced him without love into our chair. He flinched and struggled when they placed the blood pressure cuff around his arm. Only my voice could bring him back. It's gonna be okay, sweetie. It's gonna be okay. I pierced his consciousness. My love did that. When he left the house, he was walking, seemingly on his way to recovery. When he arrived at the hospital, they said, check his right shoulder. This time I won't call 911. Honey, Cody, I'm right here, I remind him. Just stay with me for a minute, okay? I beg him. I will my voice to bring him back, remembering how his voice led me through the birth of our first son. One more push. You can do this. He said it so many times it felt like a mantra or a cruel joke. But he didn't give up on me. I will sit here and hold you. Even when there's no guarantee you will return to me. Suddenly his head whips toward me under his control. Why? Why the windows and the places and then we open it up and up and I stand up? The words mean nothing but his cadence is eerily just like him. Honey, you can't stand up. Why? This word is like molasses stuck in his throat. Because your legs don't work. Not yet. I remind myself this takes time. Last time it took at least 30 minutes. Last time I didn't know what this was. Last time our children were home. Our older son ran out to the kitchen. Mom, there's something wrong with dad. I sprinted back to the bedroom. I took one look at my husband, at his face, white as death, and keened. His father had died of a heart attack at a younger age, and we lived with his family medical history and the accompanying 
thrumming mild dread. Or it lived with us. We told ourselves with false bravado or dogged hope that Cody would be fine. He'd had his tests, he was healthier than his father. But in that moment, I was, cer- I was certain my husband was dead. We got 21 years, I thought. We were lucky. Every day I feel lucky we found each other. In marked contrast, the refrain of my childhood went something like this. No man is ever going to love you. Not the way you are. Never. Though 21 years is long, it wasn't sufficient. I grabbed the phone and started CPR. This time is different. When I first see him on the floor, I know he's not dead. He's having a seizure. My job is to keep him safe, to keep him whole, until he can do the job himself. And then she says, you can open up and I will do that. I need to stand up, okay? More nonsense, but I'm happy to hear the words. The dead space of his silence is worse. Honey, you can't stand up. What's your name? He looks at me. He doesn't see me, not yet, but he looks at me. He hears my voice. He thinks on my question. Cody. What's my name? I ask. More thinking, like a child examining a pencil, trying to figure out which end is up, how one holds this thing and uses it to make words. A mysterious implement. Shelton. I crack a smile. That is my last name. What's my first name? He looks at me a bit like I imagine a prisoner looks at their jailer. Shelton. I laugh a little. He's getting better. My name is Allison. I remind him. I long not to be a pro at this. Please let me remain a novice and nod my empathy when others share their experiences. I'll graciously relate a quick tale about how that happened to us a couple of times and then mysteriously stopped. Please let this be a detour and not our journey. I don't get to decide. I know enough of life to know that. We begin at one end of our U-shaped couch, Cody face first. We are now at the other end of the U. I have pinned him against the armrest, my body weight thrown across him. If he tries to stand up, I push him back down. Repeat and repeat. We argue, but he never gets angry or uses his size against me. He never has. Not once. Why you not let me stand? He asks, full of an almost childlike curiosity. You can't stand. Yet. Yes, I can. This time full of childish defiance. What are our kids' names? Like a miracle, he says them. And he sees me. And the tears on my face. Why are you crying? He says, his words logical. You had a seizure. I tell him. Oh shit, I don't understand. Now he's scared too. I can't stop that. But I can take it one step at a time. Call the doctor, get a friend to pick up the kids, cancel the orthodontist, pack a backpack, and go to the ER for a scan. He's here. He's whole. On the way home from the ER, he says, I'm sorry you didn't sign up for this. It reminds me of the early days of our relationship. I'm sorry, so sorry, this, this isn't fun. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. I apologize because I'm crying again. We're in my bed, my head on his chest, our Kodak backpacks tossed on the floor. I've said, I love you. 
before and meant it. But the safe harbor Cody provides is brand new. And I'm murderless. I've never felt this cared for in my life. Not really. He might die. I sob. He holds me. Yes, but not today. Not anytime soon. Cody's love for me felt like a meteor shower, dazzling and otherworldly. I reveled in it, sure, but as children of divorce, we both feared the inevitable decline if he didn't die first. Of looks and words laden with resentment, maybe even disgust. As many best-tellers extol, love requires a daily commitment. And that Tuesday, it meant tackling him and holding him with my voice and my hands. Other moments appear less remarkable. When we lay on the couch in the quiet of the late night, our kids finally asleep, and listen to one another, phones down, recount the intricacies of our days. Love is an opportunity to hold one another like we're precious. And on most occasions, we succeed. Mm -hmm.